Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today. Um, we have a, a, a good discussion in store for everyone, so we hope you will, those of you watching live, to please put your comments in the text boxes. If you're using the Zoom app, you can also use your audio. Uh, you come in using your audio if you click the hand icon in the Zoom app. If you're coming in off of the... Um, YouTube channel, put your comments there, text form as well, and uh, we'll be monitoring them and bringing them into the conversation. We have Scott with us today. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing right, Drew. How are you today? Doing very well, thank you. Stephen, good to see you with us again. You were away last week. Did you enjoy your vacation? Yes, we did. It was a lot of fun. It's good to be back. Good. Good to see you back. Jeff, Jeff, I don't see you here, but I know you're here. Jeff, do you hear me? Are you here? Hello, Jeff. Hey, sorry about that. I forgot to turn my camera and mic on. There you go. And Jonathan, good to see you also. Jonathan, how you doing? I'm doing well. Great, great. So, gentlemen, we are going to go to a particular uh, set of scriptures. Uh, Scott, as program director, where are we going? We're going to be in Romans 7. I'm going to read just a few statements out of it, and then... We're going to talk about it, and uh, I'll ask somebody to begin with kind of setting Romans chapter 7 within the context of Romans generally, and then we'll start going through it. So this is a text uh, that'll sound familiar to you, and people have disagreed for quite a while about who it's talking about, what it's talking about. And let's start with Romans chapter 7, verse 17. All right, let's start with 16. If what I would not, that I do, I consent to the law that it is good. So now it is no more I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but to do that which is good is not. For the good which I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I practice. But if what I would not, that I do, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in the law that to me who would do good, evil is present. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I see a different law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity under the law of sin, which is in my members. And it ends with saying, I myself, with the mind, indeed, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So what's going on here? Is this uh, a description of a Christian, Paul's life in Christ? Is it a description of something else? And that's what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, it's really popular for people to turn to this passage and say, this illustrates what all of us who are Christians struggle with that we want to do the right thing, but sometimes we do the wrong thing. And the problem with that uh, is that's not what Paul is saying. That may be true, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Yeah, it really is easy to read Romans 7 and relate to it. Uh, it is. It's, yeah. And we can feel that. We read that and we're like, yeah, I've, I feel like what Paul is describing there. And so that makes this kind of a challenging text. So, uh, and, 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 it tends, well, we'll get to some of the dangers of misunderstanding it later. First, let's set it within the context of Romans. So somebody just real briefly, 
tell us what Romans is about, and then somebody start introducing it from chapter six. What's Romans about? Well, real briefly, Romans is about justification and about the fact that God has chosen to justify us by grace through faith on the condition of faith rather than on the basis of being circumcised or on the basis of being biological descendants of Abraham, that is, Jews in the flesh. And so as you start out in the book of Abraham, uh, book of Romans, Paul shows that man is condemned in his own right and is in need of justification. And then he argues that this includes the Jews. The Jews do the same thing as the Gentiles. The Jews thought they were justified because they were Jews. Yeah. And Paul says, no, that doesn't get it done. Whether Jew or Gentile, we're all under sin. And then he talks about, but there is a righteousness. It's not through the law, but there's a righteousness that was witnessed by the law. It was anticipated by the law. And it's a righteousness from God in Christ Jesus. And then he argues it's conditioned upon faith. And then there are all kinds of questions that arise. And we get to those questions in Romans 6, 7, and 8, where you have questions like, well, then, wow, if we're just justified by God's grace and all of that, then does that mean we can just sin all the more and, and um, that'll make God's grace, his favor, even bigger? And Paul says, no, that's not right. He talks about needing to die to sin. And, and that really gets us just up there to about chapter 7. All right. And the book is written to Christians in what city? Rome. Yeah. And over and over in the book, it refers to two different types of Christians in the city of Rome. What are the two different types of disciples there? Lutherans and Presbyterians? Oh, wait. There were no, <laughs> there were no Lutherans or Presbyterians in the first century. Uh, hmm. And Jews uh, and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. There we go. Gentiles. And when you get to the end of the book, we see a lot of stress placed on at the end of the book that they, the Jews need to not be doing what toward the Gentiles? Not despising them. Or actually not judging them. The Gentiles need to be not despising the Jews. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> not, oh, okay. The, 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 the and th this shows us some of the tension that Paul's trying to solve here in this book. And why might the Jewish brethren be judging the Gentiles? Because they see that the Gentiles are doing things that they conscientiously couldn't do based on their background. Yeah, they're, they're seeing things that the Gentiles do that is against the old covenant of Moses. For instance, they're eating pork. They're working on Saturday. And so there's a, there's a, a tendency for the Jew to want to judge his Gentile brethren. And the Gentiles are told not to look down on or despise the Jews because the Gentiles might look down and, and, and disdain the conscience of these Jews. So trying to bring these together in chapter 15, he's going to say, listen, you Jews and Gentiles need to receive each other because who received both of you? Christ. Right. And so one way to do that is to help make sure that they both see they're in the same boat. And so, as Jeff described, the first chapters say, Gentiles, you're in trouble and need salvation because you sinned. Jews, you're in trouble and need salvation because you sinned. And then a good bit of the section there in like three and four, et cetera, is making sure the Jews understand that the way out of sin is not what? Not the law. Yeah. The law is not the remedy 
or people that have broken the law. Say that again. Say that again. Law is not the remedy for people that are guilty of breaking the law. Wouldn't you just love it if you got a speeding ticket and you decided to contest it in court? You could go into court and say, but judge, the law says this is the speed. How would that help me? Yeah, yeah. You violated it. Well, and I think the idea. In front of the sign that says 60 and he clocked you at 80. Pointing at the sign is not helping your case. <laughs> well, and I think the idea that the Jews were getting at was not looking at the laws they broke. They were looking at other laws that they kept. And thinking that all my Well, officer, you know, I, I, you know, I had just stopped at a stop sign before I hit the accelerator. And I'm wearing my seatbelt. And I used my blinker. And, oh, I kept all the laws. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you weren't speeding. And, and I'm on the way to the synagogue. <laughs> and so the, and so you see the the description of a of a pharisee in luke 18 luke introduced these words jesus spoke this parable those who trusted in themselves i fast twice in the week i give a tenth of all that i get and in romans 10 it talks about those that seeking their own righteousness and so romans is saying no 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 that's not going to get you out of the problem of sin you have to put your faith in christ that's the way out of the problem of sin. And then one of those questions Jeff mentioned is that, oh, so if we're saved by grace, and it doesn't matter whether or not we obey. And Romans 6 resoundingly says, what? No way. Right. No way. In fact, somebody give us just two or three verses out of Romans 6 to hammer home that point. Well, I mean, verse 1 and 2. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so his big point in chapter 6 is that for a believer in Christ, for a Christian, you died when you were baptized. Mm -hmm. And you got to live like you are dead to sin. Yeah. And he's going to start. Says dead unto sin. Go ahead, John. And he's, he's going to start to transition just uh, a little bit into chapter seven, because chapter six is really important to understand chapter seven and eight and some of the language that he reuses. But yeah. in verse 15, he asked the same question in, in a little different way that he asks in verse one or, or the rhetorical questions in verse 15 of Romans six. What then are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace by no means. And then he talks about being slaves to sin and, and slaves to obedience and, and so on. Yeah. And in verse 16, you're going to obey somebody. You're either going to be uh, obeying sin, which results in what? Death. Or obey uh, or have obedience, which results in righteousness. righteousness. And so one more thing from chapter six, then we'll get into chapter seven. So the exhortation in verse 12, 13 and 14. Somebody read that for us, please. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, so we're saved by grace. We put our trust in Christ, but that doesn't mean we don't have to obey. We can't present our members as servants of righteousness. 
We have to present uh, our bodies, including our flesh. You mean we can't present our members as servants to sin. Right, right. And we can't say, God, you can have my mind and my heart, but not my body. No, we have to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now we get to chapter 7. Uh, somebody described for us the illustration that it begins with in chapter 7 about the world. Go ahead. So it's kind of interesting. He, he's just talked about being dead to sin in chapter 6. And he's going to use the same metaphor of death, but he's going to say you're dead to the law in chapter 7. And what's kind of interesting is he uses the marriage analogy and he says, listen, you know, if there are two people joined in marriage and one of them dies, the other is free to be remarried. And so this goes back to God's marriage law from the beginning. And this is included in the vows that we often say, you know, till death do us part. And so what he's saying is you died to sin, but you didn't just die to sin. You died to the law. And what's kind of funny about this analogy though, is we are the ones who died, but now we're also the ones who are, free to belong to someone else, <laughs> um, which usually it's the other yeah. way around. It's the one still living that is free to be uh, reunited to someone else. But we're, we're both the dead party and the remarrying party in this analogy that we ride to the law to be joined to Christ. Uh, it's kind of an imperfect parallel in that sense, I guess, but sometimes we use imperfect parallels. And I think Paul has a reason for doing so here. Yes. All right. So then he gets to verse five and six. Somebody read verse five and six for us, please. Well, verse five and six of Romans chapter seven says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were through the law wrought in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Well, that sounds pretty negative. Verse six, but now we have been discharged from the law, having died to that wherein we were held, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Well, that sounds very positive and upbeat. Now, is it very, very clear? And can everybody see the shared screen now? Yes. Okay. Everybody can see very clearly that verse five and verse six are not talking about the same situation, correct? Yep. Seven, five, while we were in the flesh, verses seven, six, we have been discharged from the law. Right. And this, I believe, these two verses here are what's going to be developed in the remaining texts. For instance, if you go, well, for some reason my thing's not working. There we go. If you go forward in chapter 5, notice how well verse 7 through 25 is a description of verse 5. When we were in the flesh... The sinful passions, which were through the law, wrought in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Somebody just pick out, sample some things out of verses 7 through 25 that match that intro statement of 7-5. Verse 11, sin finding occasion through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me or slew me. Or when we come down to verse... um, 20, how about verse 20, I can't see it. (laughs) Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? Yeah. 
And so you got through the law and it talked about how, verse 9, I was alive apart from the law when the commandment came. I died. When I died. The commandment, which was unto life, I found to be unto death and flesh. How many times do we see flesh described in 7 through 25? I've got a feeling you know the answer to that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just asking for It's a lot. It's a lot. Okay, very good. Yeah. All right, now let's look at verse 7, 6, which obviously is different from 7, 5. But now we've been discharged from the law, having died to that word we've held, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit. Put some language out of 8, 1 through following that shows it's a development of 7, 6. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Yeah. In verse 13, if, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Yeah. And uh, how about the word now there? But now. Where's that? Uh, verse 1, chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. And how about spirit? Do you see, uh, and there's spirit is used in all sorts of ways in chapter 8. But what's a few of the references to spirit in chapter 8? Well, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, Scott, it's starting to seem like what you're suggesting is that verse 5 is kind of a summary statement that's fully developed in the rest of chapter 7, and verse 6 is kind of a summary statement that's fully developed in chapter 8. Exactly so. Well, then it seems like what you're saying that chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, is a picture of man... Uh, without salvation in Jesus Christ, and chapter 8 is a picture of man with salvation in Jesus Christ. Exactly so. And yes. a good way to see it is just ask a few questions. And real, and real quick, before we go into that, I think it's really interesting to see what Paul is having to do here. In seven five. He introduced the law in such a way that he says, the sinful passions which were through the law wrought in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Um, he's just introduced the law as something that ended up producing death in us. Right. That sounds like the law is bad. Like, why did God ever give law if it was bad and evil and wicked? And notice in 7.7, 7, he's going to say, what then shall we say? The law is sin by no means. This is very similar to what he just did in chapter 6, where yeah. he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? No. So he's having to walk a fine line by saying it's not the law's fault well, then, that you're dead. Well, then, Stephen, it sounds like what you're saying, that in chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, he's, brought, he's painting a picture of a man who's under the law and the fact that it's not the, it's not the law's fault that he's condemned, but he is condemned even though he wants to be righteous. And then in chapter 8, we're talking about the man who is in Christ, and so he is not condemned. Yes, that's exactly right. A good way, I think, to summarize the rest of chapter 7 is law without Christ. Yeah. Yes. Law, yeah. law is good. Law is fine. If you don't sin, let's 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 but, let's use a go ahead, Steve. 
Yeah, and so there's one other question that he asks in in seven. He uh, in chapter seven, verse seven, he introduces this paragraph with saying, "Is the law sin? By no means." In seven thirteen, he says, "Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no by no means. It was sin." So he's clarifying in the section, sin is the problem, not the law. Let's give a quick illustration to highlight that. Uh, we are spiritual criminals. When we've sinned against God, we're spiritual criminals. Okay, so let's go to a place where we put criminals, and that is prison. Okay, what was the problem? The laws that the criminals broke or the fact that the criminals broke the law? What's the problem? Yeah, the crimes they committed. Yeah, yeah. But the law is why they're in prison, not out of prison. Now, if there was a way to pay all their fines and get them out of prison, and a benefactor came along and graciously paid all their fines and delivered them from prison, it wasn't the laws that they broke that gained their freedom. It was the grace and mercy of the one that paid their fine, right? Yes. All right, so now let's take a look in detail at the guy in Chapter 7. All right, so well, for some reason it's not a bit. There we go. Is the man of Chapter 7 dead or alive? Somebody read verse 10 and 11. Well, the commandment came, which was unto life, uh, and the commandment came, which was unto life. This I found to be unto death. For sin, finding occasion through the commandment, deceived me. Well, you know what? The American Standard here punctuates this badly. Some read it. Somebody read it besides who doesn't have the American Standard. I got it here in ESV. Uh, verse 10 says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11. For okay. So is this guy dead or alive? Dead. He's dead. All right. Next question. Is he sold under sin or redeemed? Somebody read verse 14. 14. For we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Is he redeemed or sold under sin? Sold under sin. All right, next question. Is he captive or free? Verse 23. Verse 23. Mm -hmm. But I see in my members another law raging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So is this guy captive or free? Captive. captive. All right. Is he practicing evil or practicing righteousness? Read verse 19. 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So what is he practicing? In fact, my translation says what I practice. So right. what, is he practicing evil or righteousness? Evil. Okay. Last question. Is this person in chapter 7 using his physical members to serve sin and, and the flesh? or using them for instruments of righteousness. Somebody read 23 in the second half of 24. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Yeah. So he's using his members for sin, not for righteousness. Now let's look at these questions from chapter 6 and chapter 8 especially. Is a saved man in Christ... Dead or alive? Somebody go back to six, four, and eleven. Well, take someone else take that. Well, at the end of verse four, he says, uh, "For the person who's been baptized into Christ's death, he says, so that we might also might walk in newness of life." 
and in verse 11, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. So he's alive. Yeah. All right. Is a saved man in Christ sold under sin or redeemed? Chapter 3, verse 24, Romans. Oh, chapter 3, verse 24. Sure. He's redeemed. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Yeah. He had been sold under sin, but now he's been redeemed. Is the person in Christ captive or free? Somebody read Romans six seventeen and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Okay. And is the Christian practicing evil or practicing righteousness? Uh, somebody read 8.4. 8.4 says that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That is, we walk after the Spirit. Yeah. And are we to use our members, not just, oh, with my mind I serve God, but my body, well, there it goes off into sin. In Romans 6 and 7, are we to use our members for sin and flesh or instruments of righteousness? Right. Chapter 7, verse 13 says, Neither present your members unto sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves unto God as alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. All right. So when you, when you ask these questions and look at the two texts, chapter 7 is obviously not somebody in Christ. And somebody in Christ is the opposite of all those things. Now, there's one thing common. Did this person of chapter 7 wish they were different? Yes, he wants to be righteous. He's trying to be righteous. Yes, but he's not getting it. Whereas this person has a righteousness in Christ. Mm -hmm. Right Now, note the provinces of these two texts. Here we've got 7 through 25 on the left. And seven uh, and and eight one through seventeen on the right. Look how many times this first section talks about the law or commandment. Yeah, it's all over the place. In the second section, chapter eight, where it says, "There's therefore now no condemnation to those." Uh, what's 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 our predominant words there about where this person is? Jesus, the Spirit, God. Yeah, yeah. It's all about Christ and the Spirit. Chapter 7 is about the long commandments. Is there any reference at all in chapter 7 to Jesus Christ? Uh, yes, just one. one. Area. Just one. Just one. And this is, and it's kind of difficult here, and this is what makes some people think, oh, this, this is a Christian. And, and let me just mention one of the dangers of this is I've heard people say things like this. Well, I'm st- in my flesh, I'm still, say, addicted to, you know, I'm still, whether it's getting drunk or, you know, still doing drugs or still committing fornication or still watching porn, I'm still doing all these things because God hasn't delivered me from that yet. And they're putting the responsibility on God, you know, I've been asking God to take that sin away from me. But in the meantime, you know, with my mind, I serve God. And with my flesh, you know, I'm shooting up heroin or 
hitting the bar or, or headed back over to my girlfriend's for the night. And that is not, that's the opposite of Romans 6. And the fact here, it does say in Jesus Christ, but notice this part. It points to a future solution to his wretched position. Verse 24 said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. So it's looking back at this person, at this being trapped in sin, even though it's describing it in the present, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And having posed the question, he answers it. Jumping to, and who's it, who's it going to be that's going to deliver him? Jesus Christ. Yeah, but then it goes back to the present. I, myself, serve the law with my mind, but with my flesh, the law of sin. But then it moves forward to that future in Christ. Now, in Jesus, 8-1, there's no condemnation of those in Christ. And they're not on the flesh, but the Spirit comments. Well, what you have here, and we, you said it just a few minutes ago, the, the difference is really not even between the, the desire of the man in chapter 7 and the desire of the man in chapter 8. In both cases, we're talking about somebody who wants to be righteous. Yeah. Is what it is that makes us righteous is not the law, it's Christ. And so in chapter 7, this man who wants to be righteous, the fact is when he looks at his life and sees that no matter how much he wants to do what's right, there is sin present, he's condemned under the law. But in chapter 8, the same attitude, the one who wants to be righteous but is now in Christ, he's now justified because he's in Christ. So the contrast is between... Uh, being under the law and being in Christ. And, and so then you can, you can say, is it true that somebody who's in Christ wants to do what's right and occasionally does what's wrong? Can, can we relate to the, the, the uh, experience of the man in chapter 7? Well, yes, we can, but what is different between us if we're in Christ and the man in chapter 7 is we are in Christ, and therefore we're not condemned. We stand justified. Right. And I think that there's three possibilities for why we might still relate to the man in chapter seven, um, even though we are in Christ. Uh, one possibility is that we haven't actually repented, right. that we're, we're still walking in sin, presenting our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And if that is the case, we need to go back and read chapter six and we need to repent right. and live like we've passed from death into life. First John one six, which you just alluded to. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk mm-hmm. in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Another possibility. Um, what was that? You said three possibilities. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so the second possibility, uh, hang on just a second, let me pull up my notes here on this. Um, we're just been going through yeah. Another reason I think we relate is because every, as a Christian, and as a Christian walking in the light, do you ever find an occasion where, I wish I had done the right thing a few minutes ago, and I didn't. Yes, exactly. Frustrated. I wish I would have said that differently. I wish I wouldn't have reacted like that. That's not what I want to do. And so then we read Romans 7. Oh, this is like, 
this. You know, you're, you're doing the opposite of what you want. But yes. There's a difference between, in fact, we can look at it from First John 1, 6. The guy in verse 6 that lies when he has fellowship with God, his problem is where is he walking? In sin. In sin. The guy in verse 7 is not walking in sin. Where is he walking? Let me read the 6 and 7 for our audience. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. There's a difference between the guy in verse 6 and verse 7. They're walking in different places. The difference is not that neither of them ever, 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 ever sin. How do we know that for sure? Well, verse 9. Yeah. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how about verse 8 and 10? I'm sorry, Scott, I'm not there. Go ahead and read it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So the guy in verse 7 that's cleansed, it's not that he's never in need of the blood of Jesus, because he's walking in the light. One of the blessings is that he does have the blood of Jesus, which he will need to cleanse him from sin. sin. But that's not where he wants to walk. I've always compared this to two boys walking on a curb on the way to school. Mm-hmm. And I think back, Jeff, remember when we were growing up, yeah. it, it was like about six blocks to the school. Well, it was three and a half, but you were a little guy, so it probably seemed like <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like six. Wow, that's funny. Uh, so with my little legs at the time, it seemed longer. But, you know, if you walked on the curb, if I decided I wanted to walk on the curb and, and Jeff decided he wanted to walk on the curb, Jeff walks along on the curb, and every once in a while, he might stumble. When he stumbles, his foot's going to land where? In the, in the gutter. Yeah, yeah. But if your desire is to walk on the curb, what do you do when your foot lands? Right back up on that curb. Yeah, and you walk on the curb. Now, I start off walking on the curb, and I stumble in the gutter, and I realize, hey, it's easier down here. <laughs> there's some water sloshing in my sneakers, and there's a blue can to kick. And I keep walking. We've walked two different walks. Yeah. One of, Not, yeah. Your walk was perfect, and you never stumbled, but that wasn't where your walk was. So if you see a child walking along on the curb, and you see his foot slip off, and he hits the gutter, and he pops right back up, and he's back on that curb again, is it accurate to say that child is walking on the curb? Yes. Yeah. If you see a child, and he starts out, and he takes three or four steps on the curb, and he steps down into the gutter, and he just walks along the road – is it accurate to say that child is walking on the curb? No. No. Right. He was walking on the curb, but yeah. not anymore. And so if the fellow walking in the curb says, you know, I keep seeing my foot in the gutter. Well, the child walking on the curb might say, oh, I felt that way. You know, 20 steps back, I felt my, you know, saw my foot in the gutter. And, and just a couple of steps ago, I, I saw my foot in the gutter. That's me. No, that's a different thing. And so you can see why sometimes people read Romans 7 and think, oh, that's... Now, and Stephen, I think what you said is very important. It may be that we relate to Romans 7 because we are walking in sin, practicing evil, and not doing what's right. It right. may be that because of occasional 
sin in our life that of course we were disappointed and not wanting to be there. And so two things I'll throw out and then I want to be quiet and have comments from y'all. One, is there a verse in the Bible where Paul describes his personal battle that we all have personal battles and two, an illustration, the difference between pets and pests. Well, first of all, first Corinthians chapter nine, Paul says in verse 25, every man that strives in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run as not uncertainly, so fight I as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means after that I have preached to others, I myself should be rejected. Yeah. And then again, um, in, go ahead, Jonathan. Well, on the same lines on that first question you asked, um, Paul, in, in Galatians, he refers to the, the uh, I guess you could call it the war between the, the flesh and the spirit or, or our willingness. In, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 16, he says, uh, but I say walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, which is doing the things you want to do. Which is kind of a concise statement of Romans chapter 8. Yes. Romans. There are only two places in Scripture where it talks about Christians being led by the spirit. One is Galatians 5, one is Romans 8. They both talk about the flesh. They both talk about the spirit. They both talk about being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Very, very, a lot of parallels. So, as we maybe, maybe we can take, maybe we've got just a few minutes left here. Maybe we could just move briefly into Romans 8, talk about the picture that Paul paints there of the individual who is in Christ and therefore is not under condemnation, uh, what it means to have the mind of the Spirit versus the mind of the flesh. Steve. Real quick, I wanted to finish my uh, point from a couple minutes ago. Um, oh, sorry. So there three possible reasons that we still relate to it. It really covered my second point. The first point was maybe we're still actually walking in sin. Second, maybe we're struggling with sin, but we need to realize that we're not defeated because the guy in Romans 7 is defeated. The guy in Galatians 5 is fighting, but he's, he's winning by the Spirit. Yes. The third reason... I think is that it is possible for Christians to be free from the law, but to still have a law-based mindset and to still be thinking about our salvation in terms of, I've got to be good enough. I stumbled in sin, but now I have to do enough good things to like make up for it. And I got to be like perfect enough that God will still be okay with me. And that's not salvation by grace through faith. That is a law-based mindset. And if we have that mindset, we are for sure going to end up feeling like the guy in Romans chapter 7 who has law but doesn't have Christ. If we're not relying on Christ, not in the sense that you described earlier, Scott, of like, oh, I'm just waiting for God to save me from my sin. No, Romans 6, repent of your sin. Right. But if we're not trusting God's grace to forgive us and that it's not about being good enough for God's grace, we it's grace. It's not what's not works. That's the whole point that Paul's been making in Romans. If we have a law-based mindset, we will always end up wretched man that I am. Uh, we, we can never be good enough. 
And so I think it's important to note in chapter seven, one reason that we might be relating to it is that we're still struggling with a law-based mindset. And that's why we relate to it so much. Valuable, valuable stuff. Um, connected to number two there, when you were describing uh, the difference between the person who's defeated and taken over by, in sin in chapter seven and the person who's fighting, but battling and winning in Christ, which is first Corinthians nine, Paul says, I buffet my body to bring it in subjection. So there won't be disqualified. So um, this illustration of pets and pests, uh, gentlemen, do any of you, would any of you claim that in your home, there is never, has never, will never be a fly, a mosquito, or a mouse, or a roach? I can't even say there will never be a sheep or a goat. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when, and, and we'll, we'll get to that as the pets part. Now, when you see a mosquito, what do you guys do? You see a mosquito in your house. What do you do? You feed it? They spot it. Right, right. You try not to feed it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you see a mouse run across the floor. Do you say, oh, I bet he would like some cheese. And you leave a bowl of cheese? I leave him some cheese. <laughs> <laughs> With special conditions. No. This, uh, this illustration isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that we claim. In fact, as Ecclesiastes said, there's spiders even in king's houses. But when, it, when you realize it's a pest, you don't want it there. What do you do? You, you kill that mosquito. You swap that fly. You catch that mouse. And you get rid of it. Well, that not catch it. What gets his, that gets his foot out of the gutter. Now, the sheep and goats that are often in your kitchen, Jeff, <laughs> are they there because there was a hole in the screen or when somebody opened the door, they just slipped in and, and Libby is frantically trying to, to kill them? Yeah, let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> they, are, they are there because they are welcomed there, at, well, least, at least by your wife. Okay. <laughs> and so she's feeding them. She's tending to them. She appreciates them. She wants them there. Sin should not be pets in our life. I'm going to start naming the sheep and goats sin and trespass and iniquity. I think we, Jonathan said a minute ago, this illustration is not working. I think it's my fault. But the point, point's well taken. There are going to be things in our life that are undesirable, that are wrong, and we're going to try to get rid of them just like we try to get rid of a pest in the house, uh, vermin of some sort. Uh, we're not going to just welcome them in and be hospitable to them. When you, Romans 12 says don't make provision, or Romans 13. Don't make provision for sin. Yeah. There's a stray cat in the neighborhood, and you start putting out cat food. Leaving the back door open. Yeah. Cat can come That's in. Why. It's not a stray cat anymore. Right. It's, <laughs> it's your cat. Yeah. Yes. Right. Uh, I think chapter 8, verse 13 uh, is helpful with this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, anytime we see one of those deeds of the body coming in, we're treating it like a pest and not like a pet. Um, and it's by the Spirit that we're putting to death the things that 
are evil, that are wrong. We see sin in our life. We repent of it. Um, we get rid of it. We confess it to God. Uh, maybe we confess it to somebody else to get help with it. Um, but we're treating it that it is not welcome in our life. And we're immediately uh, getting on top of that. Okay. That's, I think, well said. So it's helpful. And we're out of time for today, but uh, Romans 8 is just such a beautiful picture of what it means to be in Christ. Everything that we weren't seeing in Romans 7, we see in Romans 8. And when you're reading the book of Romans, it's one of the most important books in the whole New Testament to read all together and keep it in its own context. When you read Romans 6, and then you read Romans 7, and then you read Romans 8 altogether, you see that the guy in Romans 7 is not the guy in Romans 6, and it's not the guy in Romans 8. Somebody close us out with Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Even as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beautiful. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you all next Tuesday. And I'll let me plug in for tomorrow. Jeff, your program, Bible Quest, on Wednesday starts at 3 p.m. 3 o'clock Eastern Daily Time. Right. Eastern uh, Daylight Time. Good. See you tomorrow. See you next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>